0: Hello and welcome to Muradas, a podcast on Latin America with Laurie Blair and me, John Bartlett. Joining me from London this week was Scottish foreign correspondent Andrew Downey, a veteran of nearly 30 years reporting across the region from bases in Mexico, Haiti and Brazil, where he has been on and off since 1999. He started covering sports for Reuters in 2012 and has written for GQ, The Economist, The New York Times, The Financial Times and The Guardian, among many others. He translated Gahincha, The Triumph and Tragedy of Brazil's Forgotten Footballing Hero from Portuguese into English, and is the author of the critically acclaimed Dr Socrates, Football Philosopher and Legend. His next book on the iconic Mexico World Cup in 1970 will be out later in the year, and we spoke about his work covering football across the region, as well as the inevitable crossover between sport and politics. You'll be hearing from Laurie at the end of the show, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Right, Andrew. How are you? How are you? Uh, how are you doing at the moment? I understand you're in London.
1: I am in London. I came to London at the end of last year, and my intention was to keep going backwards and forwards to Brazil, but the pandemic has obviously put the kibosh on that. So I'm, I'm here in London, and things could be worse. It's summer in, in in the UK, which is always nice. Long nights and sunny afternoons for now, so can't complain.
0: Yeah, I can't <laughs> say I. Uh... Can't say I'm uh, enjoying Santiago's winter at the moment, but uh, it's a uh, nice fin the in the UK in the summer. Um, thank you so much for your time to talk to us uh, on the podcast. Um, obviously, you wrote the book about uh, Socrates, this sort of you know almost sort of mythical uh, Brazilian playmaker, uh, which was published in in 2017. We'll publish links to to where you can buy that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, But I was wondering if we could talk first about uh, Socrates himself as a a man and as a player and then sort of move on to kind of his legacy and the importance of uh, of kind of what he did for for Brazilian football and for, for politics as well.
1: Well, I think whenever you talk about Socrates, the first thing you have to talk about is the football because most people who know Socrates know him first and foremost as a footballer and they know him around the world at least. As the captain of the 1982 Brazil team, which was one of the greatest teams never to win the World Cup So that's really where his international image comes from and how people know of him outside Brazil In Brazil, it's a little bit different. He was a player mostly for Botafogo, his hometown club in Ribeirão Preto, then for Corinthians. he's, He's best known as a Corinthians player He was there for six years from 78 till 84 Then he went to Italy and he played a year before coming back to Brazil where he spent a year at Flamengo, just over a year at Flamengo. Then he spent a short time at Santos and then returned to his hometown club again. In Brazil, he's mostly known as a footballer for his time at Corinthians, which, as you probably know, is the biggest team or one of the two biggest teams in Brazil. However, the reason that I think Socrates is so... Admired and respected and loved around the world right now So many years after he played football is because of his involvement in politics and social issues and that really put him on a On a whole different level because he transcended sport in so many ways Socrates was one of the men who stood up against the dictatorship especially in the in the early 1980s Um, He formed what was called Corinthians democracy at Corinthians and that was this Player power movement that gave a vote to everyone at the club whether it was a the tea lady or the kit man or the Reserve left back. They all had a vote They all decided on what would happen with the club. The players would vote individually on playing issues and it was important because what it did in a time of dictatorship and repression A period where Brazil had had no democracy for almost 20 years Socrates and the players at Corinthians were Showing Brazilians and teaching Brazilians what exactly democracy was they were they were talking about voting They were talking about education. They were talking about human rights. They were talking about all these social issues and these his, these issues had been left off the front pages for a long time because the dictatorship was not interested in talking about democracy or human rights. So, that was a huge thing for Brazil, seeing people, especially footballers, talking about these key issues and, and as I say at one point, you know, no one really pays much attention or very few people pay attention to the president when he talks about politics ahead of a summit with the, the G7 leaders or whatever. Everyone listens to the captain of the Brazil team before they go to the World Cup. So Socrates had this power. He was the captain of the Brazil team at the time. He had this power. He had this visibility. And that gave him a platform on which to talk about the issues that were close to his heart.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a fascinating, fascinating character in, in so many ways. Um, so kind of taking that forward, then we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the situation in Brazil at the moment uh is, is well it's terrible of course with the uh with the coronavirus do you see that you know the 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 power of the brazilian of the brazilian captain uh that, that socrates had do you see that as something of, of the past and how does kind of you know how do footballers relate with politics nowadays because the headlines are normally hit by those uh who are bolsonaristas there's a, a couple of examples i can think of uh, uh more recently but yeah so how does how does the um you know how is the kind of the the socrates model how does that relate to kind of uh, politicians and footballers and brazil nowadays
1: well i think the big difference is that the socrates model you have to consider it or you have to put it into the context of the time which was a dictatorship it's different from today um as i said brazil had gone through this 20-year period where people did not really know about democracy they did not really have any any chance of speaking out of talking about human rights of talking about the repression of, of telling people what was going on with the dictatorship, with the, with the torture and, and the and the and the killing and the 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 whole you know the whole gamut of 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 monstrosities that that were taking place. So, a football player at that time coming out and actually sticking his head above the parapet and talking about these issues was hugely powerful. And today, you can argue, and I would argue that football players have every bit as much power because. They are much more visible, they get a lot more money, they they are held up uh, uh, even more, I think, as idols today than they were back in Socrates' time. They have so much more of a reach because of social media, because they have their own brands, because they have these huge uh, sponsorship deals behind them. So they are in a position to talk about issues that are important. And it's frankly a tragedy that more of them don't, um and when they do as we've seen in 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 several countries in the world the last few months i mean the most notable one is marcus rashford here in the uk he's a Manchester united player who's fought for Mm -hmm. uh fought for the government to to continue to give kids uh free school meals vouchers over the summer that has been a huge deal and it's really it's really brought him to a, a huge prominence and it just goes to show you what football players and what sports stars can do when they put their mind to it, and you see a lot of it. You see a lot of them on all over. You see the, the, the you saw the NBA a few years ago. Um, a lot of the NBA stars took positions about uh, on Black Lives Matter. You saw Colin Kaepernick obviously doing the same thing at the at the, the NFL. You had Megan Rapinoe and a lot of the US women 's players coming out and, and, and speaking out on, on issues that were dear to their hearts, so I think f- sportsmen and women today have a, a an even greater soapbox soapbox in which to be heard
0: yeah, and I, th- I think that one of the other, one of the other kind of really um... You know, one of the more attractive sort of you know uh, legendary sides of, of Socrates was how he was as a person, obviously beyond the politics and and the this sort of mercurial um, you know talent he had on the pitch. He also smoked uh, for for most of his life. I think he I, I read that he would stopped before uh, that World Cup when he was uh, when he was made captain on the um, you know kind of forced to do so by the by the, by the manager. Uh, he drank quite a lot, but that was that was the case with a lot of players at the time. And obviously, you know, as sport was kind of professionalized uh, in all sorts. Sorts of senses, uh, so much, so much more over you know over the last kind of twenty or thirty years. Um, you know, is you know was that was that a, was that an integral part of, of what Socrates was? That he was he was quite a, a relatable figure for for so many who didn't have a voice at the time.
1: Yeah, I think the the, the words you use, relatable, is is a, is a key word here. I think I think football fans, when they look at Socrates, they can relate to him precisely because. You know, he smoked, he drank, he did all the things that normal people do, and at the same time, he was still able to be one of the greatest footballers of all time. And that's a very attractive thing. Is that you know, when we look at footballers, or lots of people look at footballers as their as their heroes, and they look up to them. And this was a guy who you could relate to because he had all these similar foibles to that a lot of us do, these similar vices that we all, you know, struggle with and 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 you know, try to fight. And that really made him this hugely attractive persona. The other thing is Socrates that's worth saying is that Socrates is he was a man who was always hugely independent, he was always hugely contrarian, he was always a big, big, big thinker. So he as a as a as a as a young man, he studied medicine at the same time as he played professional football. So he was not your average footballer. He was always somebody who was much more intellectual than than most of most of the, 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 the players around him. And I think that also gave him this this intellectual aura that was particularly attractive to 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 the left. And of course Socrates became more and more you know lefty as he got older. And I think that, that you know The fact that he took these positions, that he stood for something, it made him a very attractive character and it made, it it, it allowed people to relate to him because a lot of people have these same ideas and want somebody to stand up for them and want somebody to to, to speak out and, and they got that with Socrates.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and I I mentioned in the introduction as well that you you'd also uh you translated the book about um Garincha as well, this other kind of you know, he was sort um another I think he was a winger, wasn't he? He was a um sort of bow legged um uh, footballer who had all, all sorts of kind of any growth problems when he was young. He came from very humble humble origins, and you see that a lot with the the kind of the the, the Brazilian footballers that are kind of held up um, as this kind of you know this uh, the symbol of uh, of the the beautiful game and how they've you know a lot of them have come from you know origins where they don't really have. Um, any exit apart from apart from football, and do you think that I mean it's not something that's uniquely Brazilian? I think across across Latin America you see it. I mean, a lot, um, a lot of players, you know, across the world really come from come from those origins. I mean, there's a certain romance about Brazilian footballers, and I think obviously Socrates stands up as um, as perhaps one of the one of the greats there. But do you, do you have any more plans to uh, to profile or, or or look at kind of other? figures in this light and and are there any kind of candidates at the moment among the kind of current crop of resilient players?
1: Well I think that what you're getting at here is that these you mentioned Garinsha you mentioned Socrates and, and I would add into that players like Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Romario I think what they all have in common is that they are characters they are people who had a real personality about them and I think that is what is really attractive, and that's what we don't quite see so much today, because players are they, they, they get involved in football at a much younger age, so they learn. You know, they're they're often they're often burnt quite early because of what's written about them. Uh, they also learn to be more media savvy they learn what they can say what they can 't say and of course, you have social media where you say you know you put, you can have with the best of t- you can have the best of intentions and yet you put a comma in the wrong place or a, a, a word in the wrong place, one word too many, one word you know one word you know not enough in a sentence, and you will get absolutely crucified and I think there's a there 's a lot of that going on and mm-hmm. players are really afraid to come out and say you know what they what they believe. And so that's a big thing about uh, uh, about Brazilian football, that a lot of them are, are are mavericks. And I think it's the reason that, that there's that so much love for a player like Socrates and Gahincha, players like Socrates and Gahincha, Romário, etc. And, you know, people people love Pelé, people respect Pelé, but he's not quite, doesn't have quite that same aura. Or not, what is an aura? People mm-hmm. don't love Pelé like they love Gahincha for that, for that mm-hmm. exact reason and I think you see that more and more today you have players that you might respect and you might like and you know are hugely talented but they don't have this same fans don't have that same you know, real love for them as they did for these these guys who were who were outspoken and and, and mavericks and rebels
0: yeah I think the you know the pantheon of great Brazilian footballers is, is uh is an incredible uh it's incredible, isn't it? There are just so many of them. And as you say, you added so many more into the into the mix there. Um, and I think now if we just change the conversation topic slightly to, to your to your book that's coming out later in the year uh, about the, the 1970 uh, World Cup. In Mexico, which was you know one of the it held the Olympics, Mexico Mexico City had held the Olympics two years before, uh, and then this World Cup came kind of on the back of that, and there was this sort of sense that you know Mexico was sort of you know this sort of developing, young, sort of vibrant nation. Um, could you give us a sense of the of the of the colour and in, and importance of that 1970 World Cup and and how your how your kind of process of recording all these oral histories was?
1: I think the Mexico World Cup in 1970 is unquestionably one of the most iconic world cups of all time if not the most iconic world cup of all time and there's two reasons for that i try i try and explain that the 1970 world cup it was it was a world cup of firsts and of lasts, and i say that because 1970 it was the world it was the world cup that came right on the cusp of change it was the world cup that, that brought it was the first world cup to have uh yellow cards and and The threat of red cards, although none were actually dished out. It was was the first World Cup to have its own ball. It had this modern, you know, stylish Telstar ball with the black and white Mm -hmm. panels. The first one that really had uh, the black and white panels rather than the old brown oblong panels that they had used, the heavy leather balls. It was the first one to have substitutes. (laughs) It was the first one to be held outside of Europe or or South America. And most crucially of all, it was the first World Cup to be broadcast live and in colour. to, to primarily to Europe. And so that marked a real change in football. And at the same time, it was the first World, it was the last World Cup to take place and only or or be primarily about the football. It was was a sporting event that was still almost entirely about the sport. Mm -hmm. In, In later years you would see FIFA would sign these huge mega deals with mastercard and coke and sony and all these other deals and that kind of stuff had still to come into football the players still wore shirts there was no you know three lines on the sleeves or there was no swooshes on the chest they never had their own most of them never had their own boot deals you know there was no statistics and there was no sponsors smart of the match and there was no heat maps or anything like that it was all still really you know quite amateur and in inverted commas and that was the last World Cup to to, to 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 be like that. It all changed round about nineteen seventy. 1970. In nineteen seventy four of course you had the, the this, this sea change in football because João Havelange, who was the 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 Brazilian who came in and was elected the president of FIFA in nineteen seventy-four, he started his campaign after the nineteen seventy World Cup and that marked the end of seventy years of Europeans running FIFA and when Havelange came in it provoked a huge change because he brought in lots of different African countries who were signed up or who were who, who joined FIFA it was the same with a lot of different Asian countries and so you had this real swing from FIFA being a, a, a primarily European organization to being a world organization and that was a, a another huge change and that all came around 1970. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah so I mean it was sort of the the kind of the the, the first modern but the kind of the um the, the last sort of pre-modern world cup wasn't it? It, it it seems like a fascinating event and I think there was you know there was there were so many as you say so many reasons to to have written you know about this one in particular uh, this event in particular and so i understand obviously you focused on the the oral histories of some of the you know some of the protagonists and 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 the um you know and the people who were involved in organizing and running kind of you know there at the time and you know what you know what were the what were the kind of stories you heard when you were when you were talking to these people and, and and trying to kind of piece together what this kind of event was actually like
1: yeah it was difficult because it was 50 years ago so there's not a lot of people who are still available, who are still alive, who are still really lucid, who have fresh stories to tell about 1970. A lot of the people, or some of the people involved, wanted money for interviews, which I just didn't have. Um, mm-hmm. And the other problem is that 1950, 1970, it was, such a, you know, it was such an iconic World Cup, it was such a memorable World Cup that really a lot of the stories have been, have been being told ever since. So it was very hard to come up with new tales. So the way I tried to get around it was, because it was so difficult to get first-hand interviews, um, I got journalists or researchers involved in I think it was 11 of the 16 countries uh, and I got them to try and get in touch with players from from the countries they were in. Mm -hmm. For example, somebody in Sweden, somebody in um, Romania, somebody in Bulgaria, somebody in... Uh, Soviet Union. They they got in touch with players and, and they uh, they went and did the interviews for me, and I was able to compile it all. Of course, uh, you know I have a particular expertise in Brazil because I've spent a lot of time in Brazil. I know a lot of the nineteen seventy players. I I tried to speak to as many of them as I could. It was very difficult because a lot of them, you know, demand payment for interviews.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, England. There's not a, f- a lot of the English players are uh, not very many of them are still alive. Um, so I I just tried to get as many of them as possible. I tried to get as many stories as I could. I, I, I what I did to to augment all this was I, I got a, a lot of information from old archives. Um there's archives in Brazil where you you have these old players from 1970 talking about the World the World Cup. A lot of them have written books. And because it's the most iconic World Cup of all time, a lot of them have been talking about this. So I was able to go through uh, old interviews, old TV programs, old documentaries and, and pick up quotes from from there. Um, and the same thing in England and Germany, there was a lot of players who had written books and so I was able to go through the books they had written and pick up the stories and pick up the, the, the tales that they had and, and weave all that together so that you had the different players talking about all the events and all the games that were important.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like there are some, you know, there some, you know, not not many of them survive, obviously, with it being such a long time ago. But it was obviously such a such a critical juncture for for world sport and for world football that, um, you know, I think it's a story that really that really did need telling. I mean, there, you know, which which are the other kind of stories that you really focused on? You know, was it was it about were you looking at the Brazilian side that was sent, or which which stories did you focus on?
1: The book is an oral history, not just about Brazil, but about the whole World Cup. So. As I said, I tried to get interviews from as many countries as I possibly could, and I have ended up getting first-hand interviews from 13 of the 16 players. Um, sorry, from 13 of the 16 countries. Mm. But obviously, you know, because when any, whenever you talk mm. about the 1970 World Cup, you, you immediately think about Brazil. Um, you know, The greatest team of all time, with the greatest player of all time, Pelé, at his, at his best. So a lot of it ended up being about Brazil, also because so much has just been written about Brazil, and the Brazilians have been talking about this game and this World Cup for such a long time. So you know, a large part of the book is about Brazil. A large part of it mm. is also about England, who were the reigning champions and who you know, who, who played in uh in, in two of the great games of that World Cup against both Brazil and against West Germany. So a lot of it is, is about Brazil. A lot of it is about England. You know, and a lot of it is about. Uh, Italy and Uruguay, who were the other the other semi finalists, um, but there are a whole bunch of little stories that you know most people probably don't know about. I mean, you know, there was, there was an earthquake in Peru just days before the World Cup began, and a lot of the players, uh, they, the 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 Peruvian FA tried to keep it from the players as long as they could, so that the players' preparations would not be you know would be knocked off kilter. And it was only some of the fans that were in the that came to training games off the Peru team that actually passed on the information that there had been this massive earthquake in in Peru to the players and that so i mean there's all these little you know stories around that around the World cup that I, I think you get them around any World cup, but because it was such a long time ago, I think a lot of people you know, will be surprised at some of the mm-hmm. some of the things that went on uh, and some of the funny tales that that, that that the players have to have to recount about the about the tournament.
0: Mm-hmm. And you said it was a it was a fairly kind of amateur World Cup in some senses. I imagine a lot of the you know a lot of the kind of the stories and the context. I mean, it's it's inconceivable nowadays to imagine, um, you know, like such a such a huge kind of news event being kept from kept from players. I imagine that kind of you know the, the sort of context at the time and, and the way the world was played a fairly significant role in uh, in shaping the the tournament, and it was sort of you know being broadcast around the world at the same time. So and I imagine that you know a lot of the stories that you found. Uh, were fairly you know to do with this kind of the amateur side of the game, which was still so so much a part of of what went on, which we don 't really see nowadays,
1: yeah exactly. there was a few things that you know you read the stories now and you thought, well, that could just never happen today the semi final for example, it was supposed to be held in Mexico City, but Brazil managed to convince FIFA to change the the venue from Mexico City to Guadalajara where Brazil were based just almost on the eve it was it was two days before the actual game took place, they convinced the people to change it. So Uruguay, who were who had been based in Pueblo, which is a couple of hours from Mexico City, they all of a sudden, you know, they got news at 11 o'clock at night that they had to, to get to to Guadalajara the next game day. So they never they hardly slept that night. they were up at five in the morning, they had to get on the bus and it was a big, big hassle for them. And the Uruguayans say this was one of the reasons we lost was because, you know, we were uprooted at the last minute. and. You, you know, you could never imagine that kind of thing happening anymore. It's it's just football, is just way too big of a business for any of that kind of thing to to happen nowadays.
0: Yeah, sure. And you, obviously, you mentioned as well that this is this kind of this great Brazilian team um that was sent there and and um you know you spoke to a lot of the you know a lot of the players and the people involved um from the Brazilian side of things and that ended up being quite a, a major focus of the of the book itself um so what was the what was the context then back home in 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 Brazil to kind of bring conversation you know back round to uh to Brazil what was the context there and kind of you know were hopes high at the time did they did they know this was going to be you know this is their kind of great moment with the greatest player of all time at his at his peak
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because it's one of the things that people have completely forgotten. Everyone thinks that because Brazil were so wonderful in that World Cup that they had gone to the World Cup as favourites and that everyone thought they were going to win. And that really wasn't the case at all. Brazil had breezed through the qualifiers, had won all six of their qualifiers for the first time. But then... The qualifiers ended at the end of 1969 and then Brazil had this rough period between the end of 69 and the beginning of 1970 when they started to do their preparations. So when Brazil left to go to the World Cup in Mexico, they went under a cloud and Rivelino told me people thought we were going to get knocked out in the group stages, people thought that we were useless and really they went there and they turned out to be the greatest team of all time So it was, this, it was this complete disconnect between what people imagined was going to happen And what actually happened And I think that was one of the reasons that people in Brazil were, were so jubilant And so euphoric when they won Because it was quite unexpected
0: Mm-hmm yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The kind of you know these these are the stories that people forget. You know the, the sort of the context of what was going on at the time. And you know I remember particularly when I was in Brazil for the for the 2014 World Cup, and on the uh, you know on the on the eve of the of the tournament starting, I I kind of worked myself into this frenzy thinking that England were going to win it, and it was an absolute disaster all round. So you know you you just forget how these kind of you know the perceptions of uh, of teams change throughout um you know kind of throughout throughout time. And you'd have thought you know looking back now, you'd have thought we were we were never going to have a chance. England in particular, but yeah, I think that, you know, that's what oral history sort of draw out of these, uh of these kind of, you know, sort of revisions of, of what actually went on.
1: The other thing about Brazil in 1970 is that Brazil had gone to the World Cup, it was, the, the country was going through this real grim period because, you know, the dictators had taken over in 1964, and at the end of 68, December 68, they passed the uh, Aysenco, you know, this this decree that really, really, you know, doubled down on the repression. And so, 1969 was a very difficult year for 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 Brazil, um, and it was one of the interesting things that I, I got into a little bit in the book, but you no, know, not too much. You know, asking the players about or having the players talk about you know, what it was like for them, because the people who ran the 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 the, the Brazil team at, at that point, most of them were from the military. A lot of them had military backgrounds. You know, particularly in the you know mm-hmm. the trainers and 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 the, and the and the the men running the 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 backroom staff. So. You know, there was always this big question over all Saldana, who was the coach before Mario Zagallo. You know, Saldana was a communist and an outspoken communist, and he was sacked just a few months before the World Cup took place. He was replaced by this, you know, conservative guy Mario Zagallo, who came in and did fantastic work. So, but there was always this big, you know, for 50 years there's always been this big question over, you know, what, you know, why was Saldana fired? Um, was it because he was a communist? Was there other stuff going on? Was Zagallo, you know, a military? Uh, was he a fan of the military? Was he just a puppet? Was uh, where the what did the players think? Were the players uh, did they know what was going on? Did they turn a blind eye? Did they say anything? Were they under any pressure? So those are some of the questions that I get into. I get into when we talk about Brazil and and their preparation for the tournament. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and obviously you, you mentioned right at the beginning as well about um, Joel Havilland and how he, he became the... Um, the head of FIFA shortly beforehand and then you've obviously you've got the, the history as well I mean sort of the European leaders and then uh, the Blatter years following on from that I mean how, how big an effect did, did this kind of you know the what we now know is you know sort of fairly rampant corruption this model kind of you know set in place during those years in FIFA how big a role was that playing in, in, in these in these tournaments themselves which were at the time relatively small you said there were only 16 sides there um, you know nowadays there are 32 and that's I think it's going to increase at some point as well uh in the future i mean how you know how bigger how big an effect was was fifa and this sort of you know this global governing body that really did become global you know over those years how big an effect did that have
1: well one of the reasons Jean Havalange got elected was because he promised africa that he was going to start giving them more respect and and more power because up until 1970 Mm -hmm. africa did not have An automatic place in the World Cup. In 1966 the African countries boycotted the the World Cup in England in 66 because they did not have an automatic place. So in 1970 they got one place, so Morocco went to Mexico in 1970 as the first African country to qualify. Egypt had been there once before but they had Mm. been uh, invited. So what Havelise did is one of the reasons he he was elected because he did this hardcore uh, lobby of the African countries, he went all over Africa. He took Pele with him quite a lot to many of these countries, uh, and they went all over and they, and they started promising Africa more votes. And when Africa, um, it was one, it was one country, one vote. So you know, Africa was obviously a, like a huge, a hugely important, uh, a hugely strategic area for for anyone wanting to be elected the head of the head of FIFA. And obviously, there was all these newly independent countries in Africa as well. So. That was all part mm-hmm. of the the the, the strategy to get elected, and it worked for the longest time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's a fascinating World Cup in the you know the global context, the context uh, there in Mexico. Um, those are obviously the, as we've spoken about the in Brazil as well, the, the context there, uh, the context there, and how the team were perceived beforehand. Um, no, I'm re- I'm really looking forward to reading the book. It's it's going to be out in in around September October time. I understand.
1: It should be out the end of September
0: end of september perfect yeah we'll, we'll include links to uh to further descriptions of the of the book and things uh in the show description as well um but for now do you do you have any kind of future future plans beyond this or, or is this your uh, your focus in the, in the in the short term
1: um i have a few ideas but it's uh they're all kind of they're all very long term so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you're writing a book is you know it's just it's it's impossible to make any money Writing a book about football is impossible to make any money, so it, <laughs> these are all—all all these projects are all kind of part time. Um, but you know, first of all, this book has to come out, and then we'll see see where we go after that.
0: Sure. Yeah, I don't mean to rush you too much. I'm sure it's—I'm sure it's a long process, but.
1: And it's also harder and harder because, you know, I'm in London now, so you know, it's 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 more—it's uh, more and more difficult to get back to Brazil. It's more and more difficult to travel anywhere. So. You know, one of the things about the pandemic, I thought with the pandemic it would be a lot easier for, to get people on the phone. I, that's not been my experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if you want to, if you want to do a proper investigation, if you want to do proper reporting, then you have to actually be there. Whether that's in Brazil or whether it's in UK or whether it's anywhere, I think uh, travel uh, travel is key. So, you know, I think basically in the world it is right now, uh, you know. So much of, of what's going to happen is still up in the air and is still uncertain. So mm-hmm. uh, I think we need to just wait and see where you know how things pan out before we start making any big decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, obviously, re- wish you the best of luck with uh, with any kind of future projects, and I hope uh, I hope the the book on nineteen seventies well received because it sounds fascinating. I think it was a very necessary uh, thing to cover. So thanks so much for your time. It's very kind of you to, to speak to the podcast.
1: No, thank you for for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was the great Andrew Downey there in conversation with John Bartlett. Andrew's book, uh, which is titled The Greatest Show on Earth uh, and is about the 1970 World Cup in Mexico is out this September from all good bookshops. That's it for this episode of Miradas. If you enjoy listening, please rate us and review us in your chosen app. Um, It helps the algorithms deliver up more listeners for our brilliant guests. You can also tweet us, Instagram us, email us, Facebook us, um, and links for all that kind of stuff are on our website which is moralespodcast.com we're still on the lookout for um, sponsors to help recover the costs of making this podcast uh, so please get in touch if that takes your fancy uh, and thanks from me Laurie Blair and from John Bartlett until next time